The story is told of Harvey and Gladys Goldman, who after 50-some years of marriage were getting ready for bed one evening and Gladys stood in front of a full-length mirror. She took a long, hard look at herself and she said, You know, Harvey, see, as I stare into this mirror and I see an ancient creature, my face is all wrinkled. My arms and legs are as flabby as pop balloons. My backside is a sad, deflated version of the Hindenburg. She turned to her husband and said, Dear, please tell me just one positive thing about my body so I'll feel better about myself. And Harvey stopped and he looked at her and he stared at her critically for a moment and then he said in a soft, thoughtful voice, Well, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. As a follow-up, services for Harvey Goldman will be held Tuesday morning at 10.30 at the Temple Beth Shalom. So anyway, you know, while that story is uh, funny, it reminds me of a much more serious mistake in judgment that was made by the religious leaders who continually tried to deny that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that is the long-awaited Savior promised by God. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the 20th chapter of Luke's Gospel, where we find yet another group of religious leaders trying to catch Jesus in what they thought was a carefully constructed trap. Today's lesson of Jesus focuses our attention on the God of the living. Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 27, we read these words. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third took her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For neither can they die anymore, for they are like angels, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the teachers of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. You know, in this passage, we're introduced to a new group of religious leaders uh, who opposed Jesus. The Sadducees were a sect that arose about 300 B.C. And, uh, and they were polar opposites from the Pharisees. And as a result, the two of them were always kind of debating and, and warring as far as trying to gather support for their positions and different things. And to give an understanding of the differences or the background, the Pharisees, for example, were an entirely religious body. They had no political ambitions. They could have cared less about politics or government or anything like that. The Sadducees, or on the other hand, were very wealthy. And because they were wealthy, they had a tendency to collaborate with whatever government was in rule at that time as most would do who have uh, many possessions material things or wealth you know somebody comes in and takes over well we got to get along with them so we don't lose what we have and so they recognize uh, you know what it meant to compromise politically Uh, on the other hand the Pharisees accepted the scripture plus all the countless thousands of uh, regulations and rules that they had put together and the oral and ceremonial laws and the Sabbath law and all the laws about hand washing and you know they they accepted all these things and the Sadducees only accept the written law of Moses 
And so basically, they had no need for the prophets. They took the five basic five books of the Bible and said, you know what, we just believe what's in these five books. We don't believe anything else. And so as a result, you could imagine the differences that just took place as far as that was concerned between these two groups of people. You know, as they looked at this, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in angels. They believed in spirits. And the, uh, and the Sadducees did not. In fact, you know, uh, a rather interesting and funny passage is found in Acts chapter 23, if you want to look at it for a second with me. The Apostle Paul at one point was being called in onto the carpet, so to speak, to defend his beliefs. And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And as a result, he had an understanding of what he believed, and he also understood what the opposition party believed. And so, as this was taking place in Acts chapter 23, uh, starting with verse 6, we see this perception, it says, but perceiving, and so this is speaking of the Apostle Paul, but perceiving that one part of this audience were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul, and this, I love the, the, you know, the wisdom and discernment of Paul as he has, you know, we're to be gentle as doves and, and the wise as serpents at times. It's important that we recognize and understand our opposition and what they believe and what those hot buttons are. But he was sitting there and he realized what, who was out there in this audience. And so to deflect the attention from himself, it says that he realized that some were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And Paul began crying out in the council. He said, brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. That's what this is all about. He says, and as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. And the reason was the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there arose a great uproar. And all of a sudden, the focal point was off of him and it was on the differences between these two groups. And they said, you know, forget about him for a second. We're going to pick up this fight that we love to have with one another. But in essence, what Paul was saying, you can go back to Luke chapter 20 again, but in essence, what Paul was saying was this, you know, that really I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection from the dead. And most certainly he did, because what did he proclaim to the world around him? That Jesus Christ, whom you've crucified, God had raised him from the dead. And he is alive today, and that is, that's what I'm here to proclaim. That Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, was crucified exactly as the Bible said that he would be, as God foretold by the prophets in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and other such passages. You know, the Savior would be crucified. By the predetermined plan of God, the foreknowledge of God, Acts chapter 2, the, the, the uh, sermon that Peter preached. He's saying that I'm on trial because I believe what God says, that he can raise the dead. And so the Sadducees said, no, you, God can't raise the dead. And the Bible doesn't teach that. That's their position. And so the focal point began this argument once again between those who believe in the resurrection from the dead and those who do not. And you know, and really, if you think about it, the opposition that we have today in our culture is no different than what Paul experienced, and that is this, that we who believe that not only did Jesus Christ die on the cross in our place for the sins of the world to those who believe, but we also believe that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is alive today. And the foundation of the Christian church are those two great pillars, Jesus Christ, him crucified, and also Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we are all to be miserable. I mean, we're, we're, we're the most miserable of all men and, and because we believe in something that never happened. But, but we do believe in something that did happen. And because the, we have the hope of the resurrection, that we teach and we preach Jesus crucified and Jesus raised from the dead. And we're going to see more. More of that in the context of this particular passage because these two groups were going after each other in this particular manner. The Pharisees also believed in and hoped for the coming of the Messiah and the Sadducees did not. And we're going to see that as we look at this and because it's a wonderful passage that teaches us so many truths. And, and these differences, you know, it's not hard to imagine the delight the Sadducees took in Jesus being silent, you know, in Jesus silencing the Sanhedrin, which was comprised mostly of the Pharisees. I mean, put yourself in a position. It's like, you know, you're a member of the Sadducees and you see Jesus silencing your opposition party. And as he silences them, you're getting a lot more confident about yourself. See, you guys really don't know what you believe, but we know that, you know what, if you're wrong, we must be right because we don't agree on anything. 
And so they loved every minute of this, you know, this whole thing is. And so now it was the Sadducees' turn, and that's what we see in verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. It was kind of like, stand back, fellas. It's our turn. Let us show you how intelligent we are. And watch this trap we've laid for him. And you know it's one that they probably had been battling over for generations. They had been arguing about this. And no rabbi up to date had been able to silence their argument. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. And nobody had anything that they can offer. And the reason for it was this. Because the Sadducees believed and they acknowledged the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in any and the rest of the Bible. So anything that talked about the resurrection that was found in the rest of the Bible, they said, well, we don't believe that. It's kind of like people today that say, oh, certain sins aren't found in other areas of Scripture. They're just found in this particular letter or that particular letter. And we don't believe in those letters. We believe in the, we, we believe in the rest of the Bible that doesn't talk specifically towards our sin. Now, what's funny about that is, is that, you know, for example, many in our culture say the Bible speaks nothing about the sin of homosexuality. And they say, well, we like what God has to say about love, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We just don't like what the Bible says about the sin of homosexuality, oh, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But we don't like that part of 1 Corinthians we like 1 Corinthians 13. We don't like 1 Corinthians 6. And so we begin to take apart and we choose what we like in the Bible and we throw out the stuff we don't like that may pertain to our particular behavior and we hang on to those things that we do like. So we throw out everything that has to do with judgment and sin and condemnation and we accept everything that has to do with God's love and mercy and forgiveness and it's not the full counsel of God. It's like saying, you know, we accept one side of a coin and we don't like the other side of the coin. Well, you got the whole package. Well, they were saying, we accept the first five books and not the rest. And nothing in the first five books talks anything about resurrection. They thought they were great students of the Bible. And what we're going to learn is they were guilty, like so many of us, of not being as good a student as we think we are. And so as we go through this, this is the outline that we have before us. Just two points. The resurrection is ridiculed in those first six verses, 27 through 33. And then we're going to find some resurrection realities or principles that Jesus will teach that piggyback off of this hypothetical and what turns out to be a rather ridiculous situation. But he's going to answer it nonetheless and teach truth. So let's look at the first thing is resurrection that's ridiculed. And it's ridiculed because we've already noted the Sadducees had come to the conclusion and and that there was no such thing as the resurrection. Their position, very simply stated, caused many much confusion among the people. They claim to have come to this position after a careful search of Scripture. And as I mentioned, they're not as good of students as they thought that they were. And so their position was one of, we don't believe in the resurrection because we don't find it taught in the books of the Bible that we accept. Okay, that's their premise. So they come to Jesus to question him about this, what they think was a rather ridiculous doctrine, And not only do they want to silence Jesus, but they can also silence their opposition party, the Pharisees, once and for all. Because if Jesus can't answer it, then their argument must still hold water. And therefore, their opponents don't have anything to say. And it ends this once and for all. So these guys were pretty excited about this. So the problem that they pose to Jesus is found in verse 28, starting there. And let's go through it one more time to understand this carefully constructed trap. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he's childless, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now, that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. It's the Leverite law that basically said, Look, If your brother is married and he has a wife and he dies before they have any children, then the next brother has to marry his brother's wife in order to protect the family name and to protect the family assets, property, material possessions, etc. Because otherwise the name dies out. And so to protect the family, you die 
no children, your brother marries your wife. That was the law. They understood that. Now, it's important that we recognize they're quoting from Deuteronomy. They're quoting Moses. They believe Moses' writings were inspired by God, and they accept it as God's truth. So, they kind of stand before him a little smug, saying, and here's the deal. Well, the first brother dies. The second brother marries the wife. Still don't have any kids. He dies. Third brother then marries the wife. He dies before they have any children. Fourth brother. Fifth brother. We'll throw in the sixth and the seventh. We'll just make it seven. Nice round number. Seven brothers. They all marry this woman. They all die. Then she dies. Now, in heaven, or after the resurrection that you people believe... Who's her husband? And you know when they threw that out, they're feeling pretty smug. They're all sitting around laughing, smiling, saying, okay, let's see what you're going to do with this one. You know, just kind of like sometimes how we are when we throw things out, you know, to God. It's like, wow, answer this one. This is a tough one. You know, I, I, was, I was reading through that, and I, I, I was reminded of the story of the, uh, the, the couple that were married like 60 years and the guy was on his deathbed. I may have mentioned this because I like to repeat stories. <laughs> but, uh, but, but sometimes you gotta, they fit so well you have to throw it back out. But they're, you know, 60 years and he's on his deathbed and, you know, he's holding his wife's hand and they're reminiscing of their life together and, you know, how wonderful, precious a time like that is. And he said, you know, I remember way back in the day my first job. And then I lost it. You know, the company closed down. I lost my job. And honey, you were there said, and I remember that after we finally saved enough money, got a new job, and I bought our first house, and, you know, we weren't in it very long, and sure enough, the house burns to the ground, and honey, you know what? You were right there by my side. said, and then the years went by, and we had our children, and I had my first heart attack. said, and honey, you were right there, right by my side, and now here you are, 60 years later, and you're right by my side as I'm about to enter through death's door. He said, honey, I just want you to know, I've come to the conclusion, you are bad luck. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that because I was, I was laughing. I'm reading this going, man, you know, now I, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if I'm brother number three, I'm thinking, please, bro, don't die. You know, when four dies and five dies and six dies, you're like the last one going, oh, no, you know, this, this, this gal is bad luck. And then she finally dies. You know, and it's like, okay, now what are you going to do with this one? Oh, this is a tough one, isn't it? You know, this is really difficult for you. You know, and no doubt they were sitting around and they were thinking they trapped Jesus and, you know, they're going to prove their position and watch how intelligent we are. And I I ran across something that I thought was interesting because it reminds me of this group of men and how sometimes we become, you know, so filled with ourselves But several years ago, the American Academy of Religion and the prestigious Society of Biblical Literature, they held joint meetings in Chicago. And in one of the sessions, a fellow by the name of Martin Marty, who was the Fairfax M. Cone Distinguished Service Professor of the History of Modern Christianity at the University of Chicago. Can you imagine how big his business card is? But uh, in the foremost authority and writer on religion in America, he began to address the audience of 4,000 people in this audience who represented a minimum of about 20,000 years of Ph.D. research. And you know these people were sitting there feeling pretty good about themselves. And uh, he said this, and here's how he started his speech. Never in the history of Christianity has more brain power been assembled in one room than when Jonathan Edwards sat alone in his study in Northampton. And they all kind of smiled kind of nervously, you know. But he brought to the attention that, you know what, sometimes we can feel really kind of smug about ourselves. And as always, you know, pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And I got to believe that these guys were sitting there pretty smug about this finally difficult question that even Jesus can't answer. And he takes this thing head on. And you know what, and he takes it with the same ease that he took on who do you think you are? 
By what authority did you march into town riding on that donkey? By what authority did you allow the crowds to sing out this messianic, this praise to you? By what authority did you go in and flip over the money changers and, and call God's temple your house? You know, and by what authority, you know, did you do all that? And Jesus answered that. You tell me by what authority John's baptism was, and I'll tell you what authority I did that. Then they come to him and say, well, I didn't work. And they pulled out the coin and said, hey, should we pay taxes or not? Say, hey, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God's the things that are God's. And they all went, oops. They had nothing to say. And they still hadn't learned their lesson and they came forth with this one and said, you know what, you guys were just kids and now we're going to throw out a manly question. Here's these seven guys, they all died and this woman died and now they're all resurrected. Who's her husband? So, Jesus is going to lay out resurrection realities. And there's verses 34 through 40. I know there's a typo here I just see, but if you want to take that on your notes, note that it's verses 34 through 40. He answered the question, and I want to share some principles with you. Four resurrection principles that are very simple, but there's a lot of meaning to them, uh, not only for them, but also for us. And the first thing that he says is this. He says, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But, contrast, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for neither can they die anymore, for they are like angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so the first principle that we learn is this. There is a difference between this age and that age. And that's very simply what he says. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but by contrast, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are they given in marriage. So we'll look very specifically and very clearly. There's a difference between this age and that age. Jesus referred to these ages as this one, speaking of the present, and that one, speaking of the one in the future. So is there a difference between the two? You know, it's difficult for us to imagine what it's like the other side of what I call the eternal curtain. It's very difficult for us to understand what heaven will be like. It's very difficult for us to understand what we can expect, what's in store, what lies ahead. And so typically what we do, and I'm as guilty as anybody else of this, I begin to try to project what the next life will be like based on what I've experienced in this one. And so we believe, and wrongly so, that there's some type of continuity between this life and the next one, that whatever we've experienced in this one, it's just going to be heightened somehow in the next one. It'll be all the good things that we've ever experienced here, but it's even going to be better. It'll be the greatest day you can imagine in, on earth, and it's going to be so much better in heaven because that's our perspective, that's our frame of reference. But we also got to remember that, you know, the only reason we have this perspective and frame of reference is because this is what God has revealed to us, and so that is all we know and that is all we understand. You know, scientists will say that, you know, men have the capacity of only using 10% of their, their uh, intellect. Which is always fascinating because if evolution was true, that capacity would be increasing, but it doesn't. And so there's an understanding that we only use 10% of our capacity. And so we begin to recognize and understand, even from a secular point of view, that if we, can, if we had the capacity of our full mental capacity, how much more would we understand than we do if we're only understanding so much with just what we have to work with? And so the Jews believed, as many of us do today, that whatever we experience in this life, we're going to experience exactly the same in the next life. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not true. In this age, there are things that are going to take place a certain way that are just common and true to this age. Then when we get to heaven, so to speak, or the, after the resurrection, we will experience things differently then. And one of the great differences is that in this age, we get married. In that age, there will be no marriage. Now, I understand how difficult and confusing this can be 
Because for those who are as happily married as I am, that's a very sad thing. For others, that may be what heaven is all about. (laughs) All right, God hates divorce, but man, I read this passage and I say, praise God. There's no marriage in heaven. It's a wonderful thing. And I say this very seriously because a, a, a couple of years back, Lynn and I were out to uh, lunch with a couple and they, and they were uh, married at the time with two small children. And, and she came across this passage and, and uh, she was like, is, is it true that there's no marriage in heaven? And I said, well, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In this age, we get married. In that age, there is no marriage. And she started to cry. And I felt really bad because I was like bursting her marriage bubble, you know. But that's what the Bible teaches. And she's like, but I can't imagine my life without my husband. And, so it's like, and she was like really sad. And, uh, and what's interesting is now, unfortunately, and it breaks my heart to share the story, but this same guy she couldn't imagine life without has decided that he doesn't want to be married anymore. And he's left her with her, their three small children. And I haven't asked her and or what I do that in the circumstances that she's in. But I got to believe she has a distinctly different impression of this particular passage based on what she's going through today. Because it'd be like, Praise God, there's no marriage in heaven if this is the way it's going to be. And so we have a tendency to read into Scripture based on our circumstances, what we want it to say. And all I got to say is this. Look, Jesus said, in that age, there is no marriage. This age, there is. And we will not, listen, we will not be disappointed in what God has in store for us. So sometimes we get so goofy about things that we think that it's like, well, if it's not the way I want it to be, it's not really going to be heaven. It's like, you know, what? We're, the rest of us are thinking, we're glad it's not the way you want it to be, because if it is, it won't be heaven for us. <laughs> and so it's all very subjective. So as we look at this, we begin to realize that, you know what, in this distortion leads to critical doctrinal errors. And let me give you an example. We have friends who are Mormons who teach based on their doctrinal beliefs that marriages sealed in the Mormon temple are eternal. In the Mormon theology that a marriage becomes essential to one's development to becoming a god. So if you in this life make, you know, a good celestial marriage to multiply wives who in the next produce many offspring that you fill countless millions of worlds with your children as you somehow ascend to divinity. And it is a violation of the clear teaching of Scripture. Because they teach a doctrine that in order to ascend to deity, which is a whole nother subject, you have to have a marriage that's sealed in a temple that goes eternally. And Jesus says, you know what? In this age you marry, in that age there is no need for marriage. And why is there no need for marriage? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But that is the principle that he says. We will, we will not be disappointed in what God has in store for us. So the first principle is... There is a difference between this age and the next. And I'll get more into that in a second. The second principle is that there will be a resurrection. Jesus doesn't debate this whatsoever. There will be a resurrection. In verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And what he states very clearly is, That there is a resurrection from the dead. Turn with me to John chapter 11. Another very clear passage that deals with the whole subject of resurrection. And we're going to look at and understand why this is so important to us even now. In John chapter 11, you know the situation. Lazarus has died. And uh, Martha and Mary uh, are waiting for Jesus to come to town um, to console them regarding their brother. In verse 20 of chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, we read these words. It says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. 
You know, and I always like that because it's so real. You know, aren't we like that? It's like, you know what, when things good happen in life, we take all the credit. When something goes south, we immediately blame God. It's like, you know, she didn't say, you know what, Lord, well, we're just grateful for the life that you gave my brother. It was like, if you'd have been here, you could have stopped this from happening. So immediately quick to blame, slow to praise. What I'm hoping we can become are people who are quick to praise and never to blame. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to live life? Quick to praise and never to blame. But he goes on and says, so Martha said, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give. He said, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know he's going to raise again from the dead. Now, it would have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, you know what, no such thing. I don't know what you're thinking. But he didn't say that. He said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And what a wonderful, simple question that he had for her. And that is this. Do you believe that I am who I claim to be? the Savior of the world? Do you believe that if you believe in me, you will never die? Even though you die physically, you shall surely continue to live spiritually. Do you believe that one day you will be resurrected from the dead, from the physical death, you will have a resurrected body, you will be alive spiritually, even though you die, you shall live. And listen to what she said, and this is so important. She said, I have believed and what she is saying is there has been a time in my life when I have believed that you are the Christ the son son of the living God the savior of the world and men and women I cannot emphasize this enough do you believe this Not have you joined a church, not have you read through the Bible, not have you done good deeds, but have you believed that you are a sinner separated from God and on your way to hell? Have you believed that in and of yourself there is no hope for you whatsoever? Have you believed that God loves you anyway and He sent His only begotten Son? That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed that Jesus died for your sins? Have you believed that he is the savior of the world? Have you believed that he is raised from the dead? Have you believed that he is alive today? And have you received and trusted in him as your savior? Have you believed this? And the question is very simple. When? If you cannot answer that question, I have believed, then you have not believed, and today is the day you need to get that resolved with God once and for all of eternity. Because it is an invitation that God throws out, and we have got to understand what it is we believed, when it is we believed it, and who it is we have come to believe in. Because without that assurance, without that confidence, without that understanding, we have not come to faith, biblical faith, in the only one who can save us from the wrath and the judgment of God. I have believed. I have believed. And I know when I believed. February 16th, 1978. I have believed that Jesus died for my sins. I have believed that he raised from the dead. I have believed that he had come into my life as my savior because I have acknowledged him and my need for his forgiveness. Listen, folks, 
You and I have offended a holy and righteous God. We came into this world with our fists shaken in God's face. We have all turned from Him. We have all gone astray. We are all born into the world with a congenital birth defect called sin nature. And until we go to Him and ask for forgiveness, it's as ridiculous as me offending my wife and going to my friend and saying, Will you forgive me? I didn't, I didn't offend Him. I offended her. And in order to reconcile with her, I've got to go to her and say, will you forgive me? I acknowledge what I did was wrong. See, that's what God is requiring of all human beings. That men everywhere repent and turn to God and say, I acknowledge that I am wrong before you. And the only way to be reconciled is to believe what you say are the terms and the conditions for the peace offering. She said, I have believed. My prayer is that you have believed. My begging of you is that if you have not believed, that today will be the day you do believe. Going back to Luke, we see that for those who have believed, we are considered worthy to attain to that age in the resurrection from the dead. See, the only thing that makes us worthy to be raised from the dead in the presence of God for eternity is what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. We are only worthy or deemed worthy because God deems us worthy because we have trusted in God's provision for our forgiveness. So we need to recognize and understand that Jesus clearly teaches there will be a resurrection. That's as clear as it will get. The third principle that we learn from this passage is that there is no death beyond this life. Notice what he says. For neither, in verse 36, can they die anymore. For they are like the angels who are immortal. The wonderful news is, is that once we die, it's appointed for man to die how many times? Once. And then comes judgment. See, once we die, we will never die again. And so if we never die again, the whole purpose of marriage, if you think about it, the institution of marriage, and sometimes we have to go back to the basics, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, to realize why God institutes certain things that he does. And so the whole purpose of marriage, one of the main purposes of marriage, not only is to reflect the glory of God in the world around us, but also to, to understand that the purpose of marriage is to what? Is to procreate, be fruitful, and multiply. If human beings did not reproduce, then we would die out as a species, so he's saying that in that age, there is no more death. And if there's no more death, there's no more reason to procreate or reproduce because the whole purpose of marriage, one of the main purposes, is to be fruitful and multiply. Not needed anymore. So the very simple logic is, don't have to do that there. And so the wonderful thing is, we'll never die again. And that's a wonderful reality. Because, you know, the last enemy is death. And Jesus came to conquer death and conquer the enemy, Satan. And his death and his resurrection conquered once and for all the fear of dying. God's people should never be afraid to die because we know that that is not the end of our existence. But it is the ushering in of a new age and all the promises of God at that particular time. See, if we are afraid to die it indicates that we do not fully trust God. We do not believe what He says. And God's people should recognize and understand that, you know what, there will be no dying in that day. And I always like this too, because it means this, there will be no dying of gray hair in that day either. It will not be needed. So there won't be a bunch of dying. There won't be any physical dying and there won't be any hair to be dyed because it won't be needed. There's no gray hair on immortals. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. And, and, and on a serious note, you know, have you ever thought that every gray hair that you get is a gracious act by God to remind you of the brevity of this life? You know, we, we, we talk about Gladys standing before the mirror 
But the, the, the object lessons of that is, you know what, every wrinkle and every gray hair and every new ache and pain is God's gentle reminder that, you know what, we're just passing through. And as God's people, this isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're just passing through. And the older we get and the more we fall apart, the more we realize, and isn't it the truth? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But man, when we're young and we're virile and now we got the whole world, it's kind of like we don't even want to think about it. We want to put it off because, man, it can't get any better than this. God lets you live long enough. You're going to be going one day. You know what? It got to get better than this. <laughs> can't it get any worse? <laughs> you know? So there's a difference between this age and the next. And, and you know, and I want to encourage us to, to discontinue the habit of trying to compare what we know now to what we can expect then. There is no need for marriage. There will be no death beyond this life. There will be a resurrection. And the fourth principle that Jesus teaches in this passage is so important to us because he teaches us that the Bible provides the answers to all of life's questions for this age and for the age to come. And let me show what I, what I mean as he goes through. He says, but notice in verse 37, but that the dead are raised. Now watch this. This is powerful to the group of people that ask the question. But that the dead are raised, even Moses, uh uh-oh, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, you've got to think for a second. Put the old thinking caps on here. What he's saying to them is, all right, I agree with you. Those first five books of Moses are the inspired word of God. What I disagree with you on is this. You say that there's nothing in, the, in the, those books about the resurrection. Well, I'll just bring out one passage. And you notice that when Jesus was questioned, he always called attention to the word of God. Because the word of God was all truth. When he was raised from the dead on the road to Emmaus, he said, and he went back to the law and the prophets and all the books of the Bible, and he told them who were walking with him everything that was written by God about himself in the Bible. So he said, as soon as he said the name Moses, they got a little nervous. Because they believed Moses was inspired by God and wrote those books. And they accept those books as truth. So he just used one little passage. Say, remember when God said he is the God, uh, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Now, what did he mean by that? If somebody came to you and said, listen, you know what? I was a friend of your dad's. There's a flag there. What's the flag? If you were a friend of my dad's, that either means one of two things. You are no longer a friend of my dad's or my dad no longer exists. My dad's dead. Therefore, you were a friend of my dad's. You follow this logic? So he's saying that I was a friend of your dad's. So that means two things. Either he's dead now. So I can't have an ongoing continual relationship with him because he's no longer here. So, he says, now, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those words were written hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died. So, he said, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Conclusion. If God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, and God still has an ongoing personal relationship with them. And that's his point. And that's what the Bible teaches. That when you and I die physically, we do not cease to exist. 
But God has an ongoing, living, vibrant relationship with his people. I am the God of fill in your name. And as a result, we have an ongoing relationship. And I get so excited about this because it's the word of God teaching you and I what we need to know and understand. And the logic is so simple and it's so powerful is that it's the same thing that Hebrews 11 talks about, is that Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All these people were living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They admitted they were aliens and strangers, sojourners on this earth. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11 says, Instead, they were longing for a better country. Listen. A heavenly one. They realize what many of us fail to realize. And that is that you know what? This life isn't all there is. There is an age to come. That will so far surpass our understanding and comprehension of what we think and know today. In the place we find those answers is the same place Jesus turned his audience towards. And that is the word of God. You know what the Sadducees' problem is? It's the same problem of many of us today. Two things. One, they didn't believe in the power of God. And two, they didn't believe in the word of God. And if you don't believe in the power of God and you don't believe in the word of God, then you don't believe in God because everything he is and all that he tells us about himself is revealed in the power of the universe, his creation, and in the word of God that's given to us so that we know who he is. Do you believe in the power of God? Do you believe in the word of God? Listen, Abraham believed in the power of God to raise the dead because Hebrews 11 answers the question that every human being has ever asked at some time that's read anything about the Bible. How can any man kill his own son? What was Abraham thinking when God said, take your son up to this place and make him an offering to me, kill your son? You know what Abraham, the Bible tells us exactly what was Abraham's on, on his mind. He said, Abraham believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. You have promised to make from my generation, from my you know, gene pool, a great and wonderful people. If I kill my only son, you can't fill that promise. The only way you can fill that promise is if I kill my son, you're going to have to raise him back from the dead. And it was a picture of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Listen, raising someone from the dead is not that big a deal to God. Because let's go back to the beginning for a second. God took dirt. All right, we all on the same page here. God took dirt... He made a human being and he breathed the life into it. Pinocchio came to life. All right? And we are all his Pinocchios. All right? That's the word picture. God took something that didn't exist, dirt, made it into something that was a person and breathed life into it. And we are created in the image and likeness of God. So for God to raise the dead is no big deal to God. That's why Jesus demonstrated by raising the widow of Nain's son, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jairus' daughter. We've seen these all through Luke. It's a word picture to help us understand nothing is too big for our God. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And I take great comfort personally because I know God can heal cancer if he chooses to. It's not a question of his ability. It's a question of his will. What are you struggling with today? Let me free up right here and right now. It is not too big for our God. So there must be something else he's trying to teach you and teach me. And that is, God, what is it that you want to do through these circumstances in my life that you will get all the glory and praise and that you will use to expand your kingdom for your purposes? Isn't that a wonderful thing? When you recognize that, it frees you up. Because then we're not walking around twiddling our thumbs going, oh, I don't know, is this too big one for God? Is this too big for God? Is this too big for God? No. No, it's not. So these guys were all sitting around going, oh, man, 
And the fascinating thing about it, and let me just kind of read through these. You jot these down if you want to follow through on these. But the Old Testament is filled with language that teaches that, you know what, there is such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Who are wise? Those who believe God and take Him at His word. Who are wise? Those who who accept the invitation of forgiveness that is offered to us by the death of Christ and the power of His resurrection. Who are wise? Those of us who recognize our sin and our need for forgiveness. Who are wise? Those who realize a good offer when it's given to us and say, you know what, Lord, I'll take you up on that. That's who are wise. And they will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever but your dead will live their bodies will rise you who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy your dew is like the dew of the morning the earth will give birth to her dead isaiah 26 19 you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into your glory psalm 73 24 you know surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever psalm 23 Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One suffer decay. Job 19, a classic, verse 25 through 27, I know, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. We know that God has an ongoing eternal relationship with His people. We saw that when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was in a conversation with Elijah and Moses. And it says that they were talking about the day of his departure, the day that he would depart this physical world and that he would go back to be with the Father and ascend it into heaven and sits at the right hand today. They were talking about that. They had an ongoing relationship and conversation. Even though you know they were dead for thousands of years, yet they continued to live. And one day when we have that resurrection, re- resurrected body, when we're changed, in a twinkling of an eye absent from the body present with the Lord we know that if we die who have trusted in Christ we will go to be with him now does that mean we have a temporary body I don't know the Bible doesn't say much about that but I know this that they recognized and they saw Elijah and Moses so somehow they knew maybe they just had the expanded capacity to understand something that they couldn't understand before but I do know this there's a day coming where we will have resurrected bodies that will be just like the body that Jesus had when he was resurrected from the dead and he appeared in the room and Thomas said until I touch him until I feel him then I'll believe that he's God and he did and he said my Lord and my God and he appeared through a closed door and he was able to appear he's able to disappear he was able to be handled he was able to be touched he was able to be hugged we will hug one another in heaven we will see and we will rejoice that the promises of God are true we will what we know now partly we will see completely what we see dimly we will see in all of its perfection every promise that God has made will come to fruition exactly as he said why because i believe the word of god is true i believe god's word the new testament says and they can no longer die they will be like the angels they are god's children since they are children of the resurrection he is not the god of the dead but the god of the living for to him all are alive Matthew 24, 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other John 5, 28 and 29, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a passage that I use at every memorial service that I ever speak at. For the Lord himself will come from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet him in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by these words. 
See, because it is a wonderful thing to be in the hands of the living God for those who are his children. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God for those who reject his love and his grace and his mercy. See, Jesus' answer revealed they had a problem. And the problem in closing was this. They didn't believe God's word and they didn't believe the power of God. And that lack of belief limited their understanding of who God is. Notice this. And some of the scribes, I love this. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Now, you got to laugh at that because these are the same scribes and the Pharisees who were hammering him with the other questions that didn't believe a thing that he said. But as soon as he answered in a way that agreed with them, all of a sudden Jesus became very intelligent. And listen to me. Don't be guilty of the same thing. And that is this. We are all guilty of God's word doesn't make any sense when it conflicts with what we wanted to say because what we want to do is in opposition to what we read. God's word is just infinite wisdom when we agree with what he has to say as it relates to the lives of other people. Don't be guilty of being a scribe who says, wow, you have spoken well on this subject, but on the other stuff, we still don't believe in you. Interesting thing is, you know, the Pharisees gave up persecuting God's people. The Sadducees still dug deep as you read through the book of Acts. They still opposed the resurrection of the dead. because, And the reason, by the way, they wanted to kill Lazarus was, think about this. Their argument that there was no resurrection lost a little bit of steam when Lazarus came back from the dead. <laughs> Duh! That was like, kill him because he's a walking, talking example of exactly what we say can't happen. Don't be guilty of that. Have an open mind and better more, an open heart to receive the truth of God's word. The principles are laid out clearly. Do you know the word of God? Do you know God's power? Men and women... God has the ability to raise the dead. He has already raised me from being spiritually dead to being alive for God and dead to sin. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. If he can raise spiritually dead people to make them spiritually alive, it is not hard for him to raise us physically from the dead. Isn't that a wonderful truth? I'm excited. You know, sometimes I get disappointed if I think I'm not dying sooner than, you know. So, I mean, it's kind of like you go, wow, man, look at all we have to look forward to. But I understand what Paul says. I'm hard pressed for I want to be here because I've got a purpose and a reason to be here to do the things that God has gifted me and called me to do. But the day that he says it's time to come home, Hey, you know what? Don't shed a tear for me. Don't shed a tear for one another because we will be in the presence of our Savior realizing every truth and promise that we read in God's Word. And what a wonderful day that's going to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the clarity of your Word and the principles that are outlined here for us. God, help us to stop looking at the future age through the eyes or the lenses of this current age. May we accept and be open to what your word teaches concerning those, uh, those truths and that age to come. God, we thank you that one day we will be resurrected from the dead. Physically, we will have bodies like our Lord's. We thank you for the glimpse of that that we have in Scripture. There will be no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more CT scans, no more MRIs. Praise you, God. And we just thank you for all of that. We thank you that you will wipe away every tear that there will be no more gray hairs, that there will be no more suffering, that we will have resurrected bodies and what we see in part today, we will see fully then, for we will see him and be like him and just as he is. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. We pray that we would trust your word explicitly 
and implicitly that there would never be any doubts or questions in our mind that what you say is not true. We thank you for your power. It's never a question of your ability. It's always a question of what is your will. And God, as your people, our, our will should be to do your will. Our will should be to follow your plan and purposes. Our will should be to bring you praise and glory, for you are certainly worthy of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the closing song, please.